And as you find Psalm 63 in your Bible, and you glance there at the, the title, you'll see that the clues as far as David's whereabouts are minimal. It reads, when he, that is David, was in the wilderness of Judah. Uh, there are two times that David found himself in the wilderness of Judah. The first is located in 1 Samuel chapters 23 through 26. And this was when a young David, who was not yet king, fled from King Saul and was hiding out among the hills and caves of the Judean desert. The second time that David found himself in the same wilderness is recorded in 2 Samuel 15. And at that point, he and those that were loyal to him fled from Absalom, his son. Absalom had led a successful and, and treasonous revolt against his father, who was king at that point, and claimed the throne for himself. David, wisely realizing that his son Absalom would kill him if he caught him, fled. And so we read in 2 Samuel 15, 23, as David is, is fleeing from Jerusalem, while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So I'm going with the interpretation that the setting of this psalm is when an older King David fled from his son. And the reason for this is because David refers to himself as the king in verse 11 of Psalm 63. And it's also implied in Psalm 63, as you'll see, that David has parted from the Ark of the Covenant. And this is consistent with 2 Samuel 15, 25, where David says that it will be a sign of God's favor if he is able to return to Jerusalem and worship in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so since the tabernacle and hence the Ark was only in Jerusalem after David became king and brought it to the city, we're going with the later date of this setting. And the reason that I'm pointing this out is because as always, the historical context, the setting is helpful in aiding us to further understand the frame of mind that David would have been in as he composed this psalm. So Psalm 63, starting in verse 1, allow me to read it. O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. This is God's word. First of all, we see in this psalm, David seeking God. Seeking God. 
We're most aware of our need for God when God feels the most distant. David felt the distance of God. His own son had led a rebellion against him, gaining enough support from the people of Israel that David was forced to flee for his very life. David nearly lost everything in a day, his position, his job, his son, his people. And he did not know if he would return to the palace. He did not know if God would see fit to reinstate him as king over Israel. David also knew that he was suffering the consequences of his actions from years before. The Lord forgave him, restored him, when he repented of his adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband Uriah. But the Lord also had said at that time, through his prophet Nathan, that the sword shall never depart from your house. That's 2 Samuel 12.10. Nathan continued, speaking for the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And that is what is now happening. Yet God had not abandoned David. And David knew that. How do we know that David knew in his heart of hearts that God had not abandoned him? Well, because in verse 1 of Psalm 63, he declares, You are my God. And that is the language of relationship. It's the language of the heart. There is simplicity in this opening statement. There's boldness. You are bold with the Lord when you know the Lord. And David is not afraid to remind God, you are my God. It's easy to get lost in the Old Testament commandments and, and regulations, uh, to get confused in the meandering history of Israel, uh, to lose sight of the compassion of the Lord as we read of the judgment that he repeatedly warns about through his prophets and finally brings upon his people. But at the heart of the Old Testament is that which is also the heart of the New Testament, and that is relationship. It's relationship. The covenant that God made with Israel was about relationship. Listen to the words of Jeremiah the prophet. This describes what will come about during the new covenant that Jeremiah is looking forward to, the new covenant that God will make with his people. But it also describes the intent of the old covenant because the character and the love of God do not change. Jeremiah 31, 33 reads, I will put my law within them and on their heart and I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The law of God is the ex uh, the eternal expression of God's goodness and holiness. And enshrined in the law is the very character of God. And, and that is what he desires to write on the hearts of his people. His law, the very stamp of his character. Abraham knew this. And Abraham lived long before the giving of the law. But he knew the giver of the law. Genesis 17.3 contains this precious phrase says Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. A distant and aloof God does not converse with his creation. Moses talked with God. Exodus thirty-three eleven. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. That's Old Testament, folks. David also knew and enjoyed this relational, conversational intimacy with God. 
That is why he confidently proclaims, God, you are my God. David might have felt the distance of God's presence, but he understood that God was not distant. The Lord was ready to draw near. David needed to do what we all must do in those lonely seasons. Seek God. And so he did. I shall seek you earnestly. I shall seek you earnestly. What does that seeking look like? Well, it looks like a person walking through the desert, keeping their eyes peeled for any sign of life, because where there is vegetation, there is water somewhere nearby. The first sign of dehydration is not thirst. The first sign of dehydration begins with that dull ache behind your eyes. Maybe you just think a headache is coming on. The body is warning you that your fluid levels in your cells are getting low, and by the time you feel the all-consuming desire to drink water, your levels are dangerously low. I remember doing yard work for a neighbor of mine and getting thirsty in the process. You've all been there. I was probably about 18 years old. And you know this feeling as you, as you catch the water falling from the faucet in your mouth and you, and you manage to, to, to get it in your throat. And in that moment, there's never been anything more satisfying. And I remember as I drank deeply and I, and I felt the water fulfill the, the physical longing, I thought about Psalm 63. Maybe I'd read it that morning. My soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for you. And I was challenged. Does my soul, that part of me, that part of you that was created to be self-aware, God-aware, and reflective, does my soul long for God with the intensity that my throat longed for water? Does your longing for God reach that level of intensity? It should. Only God can satisfy your deepest longing for fellowship, which is to know and to be known. And the reality is that, that sin has dulled our spiritual senses, and so it often takes being placed in a position of needing God, but feeling His distance for you to realize your soul thirst. And that's where David was at. He knew that only God satisfies. Your loving kindness is better than life. He knew that he had never felt so forsaken. You know, running for his life from Saul years before, that was run, one thing, but, but running for his life from his own son, that was a whole different level of forsakenness. But it wasn't just David's soul that thirsted, his body also did. Verse 1 continues, my flesh yearns for you. We shouldn't separate the, the body and the soul. The Bible doesn't separate the two. Scripture does make a distinction between the body and the soul, but in the Hebrew mind, the body housed the soul, and the soul animated the body. The, this duality between the soul and the body, that's more of a Greek idea, more of a pagan idea. We are presently a body and soul combination and we're looking forward to a new physical body in which the soul will still dwell within. So we're not only now souls and bodies, but we will be as well. David's physical flesh, it yearned for God. 
He also expressed this yearning in verse 3, this physical yearning. My lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will lift up my hands in your name. Verse 5, my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Worship is to be done in spirit and in truth, but worship involves more than the soul alone. Lifting hands and opening lips to pray and praise are ways in which the body reaches toward its creator. Why do we traditionally kneel in prayer? Why do we traditionally stand for singing? Why do we, or some people anyhow, lift their hands in worship? All these practices, that they find their source in Scripture, yes. But the reason we see those examples in the Bible is because the soul longing for connection with God expresses this longing through physical action. We're body-soul combinations. God did not create us as these disembodied spirits. He already had created spiritual beings to serve Him. That's what the angels do. That's who they are. God desires physical beings with souls that will express themselves physically. And this is one reason that, that everything that you do, everything that you do is to be done as an act of worship. Romans 12.1 Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You cannot worship God apart from your body having an integral role in it. And everything that, that you do should be an act of worship that is done with an eye toward honoring God of putting His character on display through your words, through your deeds, expressed what? Through what? Through a physical body. And we see this intermingling of body and soul in verse 5. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. The immaterial, invisible soul is satisfied, and it's satisfied with the sense of the immaterial, invisible God drawing near, but the word picture is that of a feast. Marrow and fatness. Marrow is found in bones. Fat is found on meat. For the soul to find satisfaction in God is, is likened to the feeling of physical contentment after a good meal. You just experienced that twice at least. Thanksgiving, Christmas. What did we do? We ate. We ate a lot and we enjoyed it. Now you might have regretted how much you ate. But it is the new year. You can start your diet tomorrow. Much of the Old Testament law, as concerns Israel as a nation, revolves around annual feasts. Have you ever noticed that? Feast mentioned quite often. First five books of the law. Our physical bodies were created to need food, to enjoy the taste of food, and to feel satisfied after we eat food. And in this way, eating is a glimpse of soul satisfaction, even as quenching your thirst as a picture is a picture of finding the presence of God to be exactly what your soul needed. Every meal enjoyed in this life for the believer is a foretaste of what's to come. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to eat with Jesus. Eat with Jesus. 
we followed the psalm from seeking God to seeing God, seeing God. As, uh, at this moment, perhaps, as certain seasons of life sometimes are, maybe you feel as if you are in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, as verse 2 says. You need to see. What do I mean by that? You need a life-giving vision, even as the desert wanderer needs a hope-offering glimpse of something green, something alive. David does see something, or rather he has seen something, and it filled him with the motivation to take another step. Verse 2, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. This word translated see is not the usual word to describe seeing something with your eyes. This is not physical sight. This is a word that's used much less frequently in the Old Testament, and it refers to a prophetic vision. We find it most often in the prophetical writings in which prophets receive a word from God through a vision. It's that kind of seeing. And David is reaching back to what has been revealed to him. He's looking back to a past revelation similar to Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. It sounds like David received a glimpse of God high and lifted up, inhabiting the space within the tabernacle. Verse 2, in your sanctuary. We don't know exactly what David was given the privilege of seeing. We do know it had a profound effect upon him. We do know that it served as a moment upon which he could look back upon and be reminded of who God is. What does that moment look like for you? What does that moment look like for you? If you are a Christian here this morning, then you have encountered God, or rather God has encountered you. If you were born again of the Holy Spirit, then at some point in your past, God gave you a revelation of what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. He revealed to you that Jesus did not just go to the cross to die for sins, but he went to the cross to die for your sins. At some point, that became real to you. Jesus did not just rise from the dead into new life. The Holy Spirit revealed to you he rose from the dead to make you a partaker of this new life. I don't know what your soul encounter with God looked like. I know that yours was different than mine. And I know that yours was different than the person sitting next to you. But I know that if you're a Christian sitting here this morning, that you were given spiritual sight in one way or another. You proclaimed with the former blind man healed by Jesus in John chapter 9, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now I see. And hopefully God's revealing of himself did not cease on the day of your salvation. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 for the Ephesian believers who were already believers. He prays that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. He longed for them to be given deeper and deeper insight into the hope 
of his calling, the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. That means, that means that there will be reference points in your spiritual journey, moments that you look back upon when the Lord gave you a fresh glimpse of himself. A deeper revelation of his love. A, a broader view of his purposes. Reflecting on these glimpses, remembering them, will be what sustains you as you seek God in a dry and weary land. People used to ask me what kept me going on the mission field when there was no visible spiritual fruit when every day was simply long and hard and exhausting. And my answer? The certainty that God had called me to that place and had not yet called me anywhere else. That was my reference point. What did David see? We read that he saw God's power and God's glory. Did you hear earlier when I read from Ephesians how Paul prayed for a vision of the same thing? Listen again. I pray that you will know the riches of the glory and the surpassing greatness of his power. So the vision of God that David received is the same revelation that you and I need. It's what Paul prayed for the church to receive. The vision of God that David reached or received is available in greater measure even to you and me through Jesus Christ. The power of God in verse 2 of Psalm 63 is the power that strengthens you during the dry season. It is hope for the future that's guaranteed by the vision of the past. Hope is powerful. Hope is life-sustaining. Hope is what propelled David forward when all that he wanted to do was lie down and die. God's powerful even when you feel abandoned. God is powerful even when your circumstances make you feel weak. God is able to deliver you and will deliver you as you keep your eyes, the eyes of your heart, fixed on him. David also saw God's glory. Still looking at verse 2. And so have you. Listen to Hebrews 1.3. It says this about Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. I don't know what David saw in his vision as it pertains to the outshining of God, but I know what you and I see. We see Jesus Christ. What does it look like when God puts his character on display? Well, it looks like a man who went about speaking plain and profound truth, healing the sick and pushing back against the kingdom of darkness, performing supernatural acts that brought attention to his Father in heaven, and raising the dead. That's what it looks like when God's glory is on display. The radiance of who God is as he shines out of his very nature looks like Jesus you don't need more strength or more faith or more perseverance. Well, I mean, you do need those things, but not 
as things in and of themselves. What you need is a renewed vision of Jesus Christ and what it means to be in him. That's what we need. So when David saw God in his power and his glory, this is what he walked away with. Verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. We keep coming back to this word, loving kindness, as we consider the Psalms. You might have steadfast love there in your translation. It's the Hebrew word hesed, and it is chock full of significance. If you get tired of hearing about it, I'm sorry. We need to hear about it again. This is God's covenant love. This is the love with which God binds himself to his people. It is enduring, it's unbreakable, and it expresses God's kindness and goodness toward his own. And David claims that it is better than life. Now, there are many good things about life, many excellent things. Family, friends, a good meal, a satisfying day's work, rest after that day's work, sports, if that's your thing, entertainment, hobbies, nature, take your pick. A lot of very good things about this life that we've been given. And David, as king, he experienced life to its fullest. He did not lack. And then there's life itself. Many people, too many people, are beat down by their lives, despair of their lives, especially in this post-holiday season. Yet they cling to life because life itself is a precious gift, one that's never to be taken for granted, even in the hardest of times. And the will to live is tremendous. We, we fight for life. We look for ways to extend it. Yet even life does not compare to the loving kindness of God. That's David's point. The covenant that God made with Israel, the binding of himself to them to be their God and he their people was not the highest expression of God's chesed love. The highest expression of God's love, like the highest expression of his glory, is Jesus Christ. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. It's 1 John 3, 16. The loving kindness of God as demonstrated in Jesus Christ is better than life. In fact, it is the only way to experience life. The life that we so desperately desire is only discovered when it is refused as the source of satisfaction. The source of satisfaction is the loving kindness of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke 17, 33, whoever loses his life will preserve it. It's the same irony, the same thing proclaimed by David in verse 3 of Psalm 63. Your loving kindness is better than life, Lord. Therefore, when I find you, only then will I find the life that I long to experience. It's only found in you. It's this expectation of satisfaction, this hope of fulfillment, this longing for life as God created a life to be realized that drives David to say, my lips will praise you. And Paul expresses a similar desire 
when, when he considers the calling upon his life in Acts 20, 24, the Apostle Paul, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. Paul's ministry was to proclaim God's grace in, your lo- in his life. And so why am I telling you that? Because that's your ministry too. Are you telling others of the undeserved favor that God has shown you and continues to show you? Are you proclaiming grace with your words and with your deeds? In short, are you worshiping God, offering your body as a living sacrifice so that others say he really does or she really does love Jesus more than anything, even his own life, even her own life? Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. When you praise God, you're either thanking him for what he's done or you're thanking him for what he will do. And so if I can tie everything together so far, it sounds like this. You seek God by actively looking for evidence of his presence in your life. The vision of God as demonstrated in Jesus Christ is the motivation that drives you to find the only way to quench your soul thirst. You praise God with thanksgiving for what he will do as you wait, as you seek. And then when you're satisfied with the feast that he lays before you, you give him thanks for what he has done. Verse 5, my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. You've sought God, you've seen God, Now you're concerned with remembering God, remembering God. The nights in the Judean wilderness, they were long. They were made longer still by the fact that David did not know if Absalom and his troops would catch up with them. He was not only concerned for himself, but for the family that had fled with him and those loyal subjects who would not cast their lot with the the traitorous Absalom. And even if David wanted to sleep, he probably would not have been able to. Older now, but ever the soldier, David alternated between lying upon his mat on the ground and keeping watch for a possible attack. Verse 6, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Don't picture a bed like you sleep in. Picture a mat on the ground. The night was divided into three watches of four hours apiece. While waiting for his turn, David remembers all that God has done for him. He reflects on the long years of God's faithfulness. Verse 7, for you have been my help. God had been his help in every season from a teenage shepherd protecting his father's sheep from the lion and the bear to the younger brother of of these seasoned fighters who, who took down the giant with a single stone to the youthful warrior who led Israel's army to slay his tens of thousands of Philistines to the fugitive who gathered a band of 400 malcontents around him while trying to avoid King Saul's sharp spear. David had a lot to remember. It was David who brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, and David who expanded Israel's territory, and David who gathered the materials to build the temple. He knew that it was God who had been his help. He knew that. And when it came time for the king to take a watch... 
I'm sure much to the, the protest of his loyal followers, David took it. He stayed awake and alert by meditating on God. The one whose loving kindness is better than life received the focus of David's thoughts. Does God receive the focus of yours? And a shadow of your wings I sing for joy, verse 7. There's, there's one of two images that occur with this phrase here. Maybe both of them occurred to David. Way back in Deuteronomy 32, 11, Moses sings in this way. He said, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, God spreads his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. The Lord is an eagle toward his children. When they fall from the nest, he swoops down and he grabs them from midair, securing their lives and bringing them safely home. And this, I'm sure, was a comfort to David as he thought about whether or not he would return to Jerusalem. But there's also the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box that sits in the tabernacle. Evidence from Scripture shows that even though David was not a priest, was technically not allowed to enter the tabernacle, he still did do so. And apparently God was okay with that. And he would prostrate himself before this earthly representation of the throne of God. And upon the, the golden top of the ark were these two golden cherubim, their wings outstretched. And as David prayed to the Lord in the Holy of Holies, those wings were stretched above him. It was their literal shadow in the shadow of your wings that he sang for joy. But thank God, as one commentator put it, God is not a prisoner of the sanctuary. Because even in David's time, God's presence was not bound to the tabernacle. David remembered what God had shown him, remembered what God had revealed in those moments of basking in his presence, singing for joy before the ark. The God of the sanctuary is the God of the wilderness too. I wonder how you might be limiting the Lord in this season of your life. The same God that revealed himself to you then, whenever, or wherever then might have been for you, is the same God who is with you now. The remembrance of his revelation is what propels you to keep seeking him in the wilderness. Listen to verse Eight, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The soul, that, that longing, reflective, thirsty part of you, the part of you that is self-aware because it is God-aware, the soul clings to God by faith. This is a, a powerful and informative word, cling. Describes the the joining that occurs when a man leaves his father and mother when he breaks those former ties of loyalty and is joined to his wife. We find the same word back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The picture of clinging or cleaving or joining is one of physical, emotional, and spiritual oneness. Describing marital devotion. Later in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 14. 
as Ruth, as her sister, leaves her mother-in-law Naomi to return to the land of Moab, the text reads that Ruth clung to Naomi. She did not leave. Ruth clung to Naomi. It's the same word. She would not be sent away. She would hold fast to her mother-in-law and pursue her wherever Naomi went. To cling to God is to devote yourself to Him. Even as a husband commits himself body, soul, and mind to his wife and her to him. To cling to God is to pursue Him. Even, if, even as Ruth would not let Naomi go, she was determined to stay with her, even if it meant nothing would remain the same. Even if it meant staring into the future of fog. Because here's the thing. When you cling to God, His right hand upholds you. And His grip is always stronger than yours. The only reason that you can cling to God is because He has a hold of you. Even on your best days, your grip is not strong enough to maintain hold of the God of all holiness and all power. As we go into another new year, with it comes expectations. You might make a resolution or two. Read through the Bible. Start jogging. Be a better spouse. Spend more time with your children or your grandchildren. Spend less time at work. The reason that we so often fail to carry through with our resolutions is because we lose sight of this gospel fact. On your best day, you still need Jesus as much as you do on your worst day. Your best efforts and achievements no more define you than your worst sins and failures. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, then whether you meet your own expectations for yourself or you fail spectacularly to meet them, your standing before God remains the same. You are a beloved child of the king of the universe only, only because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. You are accepted because Jesus was rejected. You were considered righteous because Jesus was judged as a sinner. You were reconciled to God because Jesus was abandoned by God. You are a new creation because Jesus bore the curse of sin pronounced upon the old creation. Nothing you can do can make God love you any more than he already does. If you're in Christ, then the love with which God loves his son is the same intense love that he has for you. And we probably all need to hear that as we go into the new year. Nothing you can do can make God love you any less. If you are a Christian, then any and every sin that would keep you from the love of God has already been laid upon Jesus. Now the very holiness of Jesus belongs to you. 
And if you do not realize this going into a new year, then you will probably fail at all of your best efforts to change. And if you do manage to change, it'll be in your own strength and will have no real spiritual value. But if you understand that the reason you're able to cling to God is because He first has a grip on you, then you will not despair when you fail. And you will not boast when you succeed. Your motivation to hold fast to God in faith will be the knowledge that He is already holding fast to you. We love because He first loved us. And that's the revelation that we all need afresh, anew, in 2022. The knowledge of the love of God that always precedes your love for Him is the only thing that will produce lasting and eternally significant change in your life. God's love comes first. Verse 11, but the king will rejoice in God. David trusts that his throne will be restored. His enemies will go into the depths of the earth. His sorrows will cease. Everything will be okay. The king will climb his throne again because the king of kings will climb his throne. And you will leave your wilderness behind as well. Verse 11, the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. The lie inside your head that says things will never change will cease. The lie that tells you that you will never be enough will be silenced. For though the lies that you hear, they might have been true before, they are no longer. The truth is Jesus. Because the ultimate king rejoices in God, so will you. Jesus said in John 7, 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's not a sin to thirst. David thirsted. Thirst drives you to the water source, and Jesus proclaims that he himself is the source. God never promises what he cannot deliver. If you're thirsty this morning, come and drink. Whether you're drinking for the first time or returning again. Discover anew that the loving kindness of God, as demonstrated in Jesus Christ, is better than life. And then go forth into a new year and live and love out of that satisfaction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be a people that always proclaims and believes it and knows it that your loving kindness is better than life. So help our lips to praise you. Help us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Help us, Father, as we seek to implement the changes in our lives that you call us to make, not in our own strength, but in yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.